welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What do you think is the most important characteristic of the church? What makes it truly different from any other social gathering place? Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series, One Another, with this sermon entitled, Love One Another, which covers John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is from John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word, now sown among us, may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen and amen. So we're starting a new teaching series This Sunday, it's only going to last three Sundays, and we're calling it One Another. And although there, this could genuinely be a 30-week series on all the various One Anothers that we come across in Scripture, and God gives us a lot of those, a lot of ways in which we can move towards one another and so forth. We're just going to focus on three. I'm going to give you a resource next week, recommend to you a resource that if you want to take a deeper dive in these other One Anothers that we come across in the Word of God, Uh, you can do that. But for this series, we're going to focus on three. We're going to hit today, we're going to talk about love one another and how that is the preeminent one of all the one another's that we come across in the scripture. Next week, we'll look at serve one another. What does it look like to be a people who truly serve one another? And then lastly, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at disciple one another, God's commandment to disciple one another, to make disciples and to do so faithfully and to be a church committed to discipleship. But for this week, as we consider love one another, you know, in God's design for the church from the very beginning, God's design for the church is that love would be the primary ethic and the primary witness of the church. The primary ethic and the primary witness of the church. And it makes sense that that would be what more than anything else marks God's people. Because who is God? 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. Not just that he has a characteristic of love, not just that he sometimes displays love, but that his very essence of who he is, is love. That's God. God is love. And so if we are a people who have believed upon Jesus and Understand, according to the scriptures, that when we have believed by faith on Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, the only atonement for sin, 
Then what we also understand from the word of God is that in that belief, in that faith, the spirit of God himself indwells us. So another way to say that is this, the one who is love now dwells within us. And so therefore we are to be the display of God who is love. We are united to him. We are in him. He is in us. We are one. And so uh, the, that's why we can say the primary ethic and the primary witness of the church, according to God, is love. And it, it's really clear from the early church that this was on full display. Now, don't get me wrong. The early church was not perfect. They were sinners just like we are. They were in process just like we are. And they were being sanctified just like we are. And so it's easy sometimes to look back at the early church and read in the book of Acts and see the various ways in which they were doing things the right way and go, man, they just did it all right. They didn't. But there's a lot to learn from them and watch and emulate from them. One of the, one of the popular sayings that's been recorded for us in Roman literature One of the popular sayings describing Christians in the first and second centuries and even into the third and fourth centuries was, behold how they love one another. That was said throughout the the empire. Behold how they love one another. It was probably as best that we can tell. It was first said by a Christian himself, an early apologist of the church who wrote a defense of the faith to the emperor of that day, which at the time was Hadrian, around 124-125 AD. And this early church apologist was writing to this Caesar, this emperor, and explaining to him, this is why the faith is true. And one of the very things, the most prominent thing that he pointed to was, behold how they love one another. You can't deny that. Another early church apologist, Tertullian, you may have heard of him just a little bit later than that time frame, around 200 AD. He as well was writing and he made this observation of Christians. He says, but it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. For they, now he's talking about the Romans, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See how they are ready even to die for one another. And then again, referring to the Romans, for they themselves were rather put to death. He's, he's juxtapositioning how Christians love versus how those who aren't Christians in the Roman Empire love. The ways in which Christians are sacrificial because of their love and the ways in which those who are not Christians are selfish. But perhaps maybe the most poignant recording of how Christians were in the first few centuries is from Julian the Apostate, who was a Caesar himself, a Roman emperor himself, who was raised Christian but ultimately rejected the faith. And he wrote this. He said, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, pagan in parentheses that I put there, by the priests, talking about the Roman priests, Then I think the impious Galileans, that's his way of describing Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. 
He continues on a little bit later and he says, it is their benevolence, their love to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness, you can tell he's bitter, of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. Remember, he's thinking from a Roman, uh, Roman worldview, so he's calling Christianity atheism. What has, what has promoted most the growth of Christianity, according to Julian the Apostate? It's the love. It's the benevolence. It's the care. It's, it's the love of Christ in the people of God and how they love both one another in the church and people outside the church, even their enemies. Julian, even though he rejected the faith, is kind of ironic here because he's placing a standard upon pagan uh, priests and people of Rome who don't even know Jesus. And he's saying, act like Christians. And maybe they're thinking or even said back, we can't. <laughs> we don't have the power to do that. So here's the critical question. How might the observing world, describe us today? Would they say some of the same things? Would they utter the same observances? Would, would they say, behold, how they love one another? I don't agree with them. I, I don't think this whole Jesus thing is real, but what I cannot deny is how they love one another and how they love me. It's profound. It's so very different. It's a shocking kind of love. It's a peculiar love. It's a, it's a curious love. It's a, it's a love that it, it confuses me, but it intrigues me. Would they say that about us? Maybe. I, I, I certainly would hope, but I have, I have suspicion that they wouldn't. Because as we survey the landscape of the church today, what we sadly see too much of is Christians whose love mirrors more of the natural worldly love than it does the love of the Savior. It's, it's a love that is rooted in selfishness and convenience. Selfishness, do you feel it? I feel that. Often my love is displayed when it's convenient for me and when it makes me feel good, or when it in some way my love is reciprocated. And so we would be able to say as we break that down to its elementary foundations, we say, well, that's a selfish love. That's a convenient love. That's a love that's based on comfort to which, biblically speaking, is no love at all. Because here's the main idea of where we're headed this morning is Christian love stands out in shocking contrast to worldly love. As I mentioned, it confuses and intrigues. It's a, it's a love that in word and in deed presents a new way to a world void of true love. A new way to a world devoid of true love. So we'll read it again. Just these couple of verses. This is Jesus talking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, that Thursday night. When he's, in just last week, Dr. Ferguson was leading us in the next chapter in John 14. We're going back a little bit to John 13, and it's the same conversation. It's the same teaching. They're gathered around the Passover meal. 
just like we're going to gather around the meal here in just a moment. And it's this meal that Jesus puts into play that night, that he institutes the Lord's Supper that night, and he takes this centuries old, this generation after generation after generation of the people of God taking the Passover meal, and he opens the eyes of the disciples and therefore us to see that that meal, that Passover meal celebrating God's deliverance in Egypt and the lamb that was slain and the blood of the lamb that was put over the doorposts of each home and how he passed over them and that they were delivered and redeemed, that that's really been pointing to Jesus the whole entire time, that there was a greater lamb who would come, who would shed his blood once and for all, not to put over the doorpost of a home, but put over the doorpost of our hearts, as it were, so that death passes us by, so that new life enters in, and that we, for all of eternity, bask in the glory of God our King through Jesus our Savior. And Jesus is turning heads that night to a new meal. And in that new meal, he says, I have a new commandment. And this is the new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Did you, did you catch the last little part there? By this, this one thing, by this, all the world will know. All men, all men, all women, all children, all people, the whole world will know that you're mine, that you're a disciple of Jesus. How? By how you love one another. That is the ethic and the witness of the church, Jesus says. And it's interesting, right, that it's not... Jesus didn't say, a new commandment I give to you, that you learn more than anybody else, that you know theology better than anybody else. We love theology here. Don't come at me. We love it. <laughs> that you know how to answer every little jot and tittle of the faith, that you know what you know, and that by what you know, the world will know that you are mine. No, no, it's love. It's love. It's why Paul says that if you do all these things, but you have not love, you're a banging gong and a cymbal. It's love. How will the world know? It's by how we love. So it's appropriate that we have to ask the question, if that's the case, what is love? Biblically speaking, defined by God himself, what is is love. And what we can garner and gather together as we survey the scriptures is that when we look at the love of God for his people, and then we begin to think about that what he's saying is to love in the same way that he has loved us, what might that love look like? Well, first, love, let's give it a definition. This is my definition, but it comes from biblical grounding. I would say this. Love is primarily a commitment demonstrated by action, sometimes accompanied by feelings. Randy taught us this many times over the years, didn't he? Love is a commitment 
demonstrated by actions, sometimes accompanied by feelings. Now, just so we understand, natural love, and love that is just by nature within us, apart from Christ, worldly love, as we might call it, is flipped. It's the opposite of this. Worldly love would say that it's always, it's primarily a feeling. It's sometimes demonstrated by action, and it's rarely founded upon commitment. Because why? Because in in the way that we naturally function, in and of ourselves, in our sinful nature, our commitments wane, right? Because our commitments are based on convenience, not on conviction. Our our commitments are based on on comfort, not conviction, not covenant. And so when the feelings go, when the affection wanes, commitment slides, demonstrated by very little action of love. Why? Because it's so very self-centered. You're no longer making me feel a certain way. You're no longer making me feel good. And so therefore, my love for you has changed. Why? Because it's not based on a commitment. It's based on affection. Now, what kind of love are we talking about? Now, for this sermon, we're talking about love within the church. Different sermon for a different day would be for love within a marriage context, but the same applies. That far too often we walk the aisle based on affection. And if any of you have been known, uh, been married for, uh, for any length of time, you know that, yes, certainly, hopefully affection is always there at some measure, but you know it's up and down. It wanes and ebbs and flows, and it, it's there some days, and you know some days it's not, Right? But love is primarily a commitment based on the commitment that God has made to us. God has said, regardless of how you might feel, I'm committed to you. I'm in covenant with you. I have made a covenant with you, and I will not break that. And I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm not just going to tell you. Telling you is important. But I'm going to show you. You are going to know that I love you. Love, as DC Talk famously wrote, love is a verb. People my age got that. If you're, if you're not my age, you know, you know what that is. I went back and played it uh, just because I hadn't listened to it in so long. And I was <laughs> just so 90s. It was, uh, I'll just leave it at that. It was good. It was good. Um, but they were right. Love is a, ber- a verb. It is action-oriented. It is a commitment that demonstrated by action. In other words, it, it would be so bizarre, right, if we were, let's say we were walking the streets of downtown Atlanta and, and we came across someone in great need, perhaps maybe a homeless person, someone who is very visibly in great need, and we walked up to that person and said, I love you. I love you. And then we walked away. It's not love, is it? I mean, you you said it, but there was nothing, no action with it, no demonstrative action that would say, let me show you how I love you. We see this all the time within relationships, within marriages, where perhaps a, a spouse says often, I love you. I love you, I love you. And that, again, that's important to hear. But if that I love you that is heard is never experienced through the action of love, then that what they hear is doubted, is it not? Because love is active. Love is a commitment. Demonstrated by actions, sometimes accompanied by feelings. 
The disposition of our sin-ridden hearts is to love selfishly and conveniently. So we have to go, okay, if the command is to love like Jesus has loved us, then the second question we have to ask is, how, how has he loved us? How has Jesus loved us? Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Which, this right here is why Jesus says it's a new commandment. Because perhaps you might know your Old Testament fairly well, and you know that, well, how is this a new commandment? God is, God's talked about love and loving one another to his people in the Old Testament. He went to great lengths in his law, uh, in, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and parts of Exodus to, to, to lay out for his people, this is what it looks like to love the sojourner among you. To love one another, here's what that looks like. Here's the law that, that leads you in how to love one another. And, and even he records for us in the Old Testament the, the, what we now call the great commandment. To love neighbor as yourself. So how is this a new commandment? Well, it's new because Jesus is now saying very definitively, it looks like me. Love one another like I have loved you. In other words, he's saying, look, God put on flesh. I came in the flesh. I, I, I put on human skin and I lived among you the love of God. You've seen it now. It's not just in the book of the law, it's in front of you. It's real, it's active, it's living. You now see what love is. And it's me. How I have loved you, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew, Bartholomew, so forth. You love the same way. It's a new commandment that I give you. How has he loved us? Well, let me give you four things briefly here. First, he's loved us unconditionally. There is no condition upon which we could ever stand upon to say that we warranted God's love. None whatsoever. Scriptures make it abundantly clear that the only condition that we have is that of is the wrath of God, to receive the wrath of God. Ephesians 2 makes this very clear among other places in the Bible, but Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in the trespasses of our sin in which we once walked. It says that we follow the way of the world, that we follow the prince of the power of, of the air, that's Satan himself. And then it says that we are by nature, here's our condition, by nature children of wrath, meaning a holy God dealing with a sinful man can only appropriately justly punish so if we want to stand on any condition, it can't be, well, I'm more put together than this person, or I, my church attendance is better than this person, or I have done more good things than this person. And so God, based on these conditions, your love for me is more warranted. That's, we, we have no ground to stand on. There is no condition in which we can stand before God and be warranted for his love, of his love. But he loves us unconditionally, praise God. He doesn't love us based on the condition that we're in and the helpless condition that we're in. 
Scriptures say so beautifully that even while we were dead in our sin, he loved us. Verse 4 there in Ephesians 2 is just so magnificently beautiful because it says, but God, being rich in mercy, and here it is, and with the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He's loved us unconditionally. Secondly, he's loved us humbly. He's loved us humbly. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be, to be grasped, meaning that he was willing to leave the glory and the throne room of heaven to humble himself and come in the likeness of man to take on human flesh and to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. This humble mindset of Jesus is wrapped up in this beautiful mixture with his love. To say that if I'm going to love you unconditionally means that I'm going to love you humbly. And closely related to that is selflessly. That if the mind is a humble mind, then I'm going to love you humbly, then it means I'm also going to love you selflessly. Then I'm going to say to you that I'm considering your needs is more important than the glories of heaven. This is why in Philippians 2, it tells us that the bedrock, the motivation for how we can even begin to love people in an in a, uh, unconditional and humble way is to consider their needs as more important than our own. To love selflessly. But ultimately where that lands us is we're going to be a people who love unconditionally and humbly and selflessly is that it has to land in this place of sacrificially. Because this is how Jesus has loved us. Remember it's how, what I just quoted for us there in, in Philippians 2 that he, he came, yes, humble, and he came as a servant and as a man, but he came, what? Obedient to death, even death on a cross, meaning that the love that God has had for us led him to the cross. That he so loved us, that he would sacrifice for us, that he would die for us. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, and then ultimately through the preserved scriptures to us, to love others just as I have loved you, it carries with it that beautiful, beautiful weight. The extent to which we grasp how Jesus has loved us will be the extent to which we love others the same way. Because it's this very same love that indwells us. I want to say this again. I don't want you to miss it. It's the very same love of God that now indwells you if you're a follower of Jesus. He lives inside of you. His love is in you. Can you love people like Jesus on your own? Absolutely not. Can you love people like Jesus if his power and his presence is in you? Yes, we can. Not only that, as I started and will continue to say, it is the very marker, it's the very ethic, the very witness of the church. Listen to what Bruce Milne said. I love how he said this. He said, a loving community says Jesus is the visible authentication of the gospel. 
It's our apologetic, as it were. It's, it's, it's people being able to look at the church and go, how is Jesus real? How do we know? Well, the primary way is by our love. William Hendrickson said it this way, genuine, deep-seated, constant, and self-sacrificing love for one another is the distinguishing trait of the, of the Christian. It is the distinguishing trait of the Christian. Francis Schaeffer takes it even a little bit further and a little more to an uncomfortable place. In his book, The Mark of a Christian, he argues that love and unity are the final apologetics of the church. He bases this off of teachings out of John 13, where we are now, about the love that we would have for one another based on the love of Jesus, and John 17, about the unity of the church. He wraps those together. This is what he says. He says, our love will not be perfect, but it must be substantial enough for the world to be able to observe, or it does not fit into the structure of the verses in John 13 and John 17. And if the world does not observe this among true Christians, the world has a right to make two awful judgments which these verses indicate. One, that we are not Christians. And two, that Christ was not sent by the Father. Because in those passages in John 13 and John 17, Jesus says very clearly, by this will all men know that you are mine. It is the primary ethic and witness of the church. Love. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus went further? If he had at one point just told us, so this is a little more specifically what I'm talking about. I don't want to leave it just at, it just love one another like I have loved you, but a little bit more specific. Well, good news. He did. Listen to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Okay, this just got really, really, really hard. <laughs> He's taking a common saying from the Pharisees, the religious people of that day, who had twisted God's word to apply it in such a way to make it convenient. He was saying, look, it's, the Pharisees were saying, look, it's okay, love those who love you, hate your enemy. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the heart of God. That's not my love. He says, love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you, and then don't miss this. This is huge. He connects it to sonship, which is to say, he, he says, in other words, if you're a child of God, if you're a son or daughter of Jesus, of God through Jesus, when he lays out for us in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8 the, this teaching of adoption, that when, we're, when we believe upon Jesus, that he adopts us into his family, and that we with Christ have the inheritance of Jesus, meaning that we will receive glory upon glory in the presence of Jesus, and all that is Christ will be ours, just as it were, with a child who would receive the inheritance of the Father. And he's saying that 
He's connecting the dot between loving your enemies, this Christian ethic of love through Christ in us, is fully and completely tied to the fact that we're children of God. Not to earn our salvation. It's not, listen, don't misunderstand this. It's not, I'm going to love my way into sonship. No, no, no. Because you have been loved and you have been adopted, this is then how you love. Because I'm now dwelling within you. You have a new nature. It's warring with your old nature. You still want to love selfishly and conveniently, but the new Jesus nature in you, the Holy Spirit nature in you, is doing a total contradictory work to where we die to self and we love unconditionally and we love selflessly and we love humbly such that we would actually love enemies. Luke captures even more of this teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. That's Again, he's using Pharisaical language. The Pharisees would call those who they saw as below them and not righteous as sinners. So Jesus is a play on words here. We're all sinners. But it's a play on words to say even the lowest of the low religious people, the people that you think are below you and have no place with God, even they do that. I mean, it's easy to love people who love you. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And then he connects it to sonship again. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Are you kind of wishing that Jesus had just left it at love one another? I mean, he ramps it up, right? I mean, he revs the engine. He takes it to a whole new level. It's, it's easy to love those who love you. Love enemies. But why or how would, would we want to do this? Well, because it's all rooted in and captured in the gospel. Because it says right there at the end, it says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. That's Jesus' way of saying, that's you. That's me. That's us. It's not just people out there. It's not just, oh, he's kind and, uh, to the ungrateful and the evil. No, no, no. All of us, that's who we are apart from the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. We were a people who were not looking for God. We were a people who were not grateful for God. We were a people who were by nature evil in all of our desires and were in every way pushing against God. We didn't want him. We didn't think we needed him. And by his grace, he saved us through his unthinkable love. And Jesus is saying to us, if that's how God has loved you, and now I've shown you what that looks like, disciples, now you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, go and love the same. It's Christian love. It's unique love. It's peculiar love. It's shocking love. It's countercultural love. It's a love that when people witness it, they go, I can't love like that. But I wish I could. And we get to then say, let me tell you about Jesus. It is the ethic and the witness of the church. 
I've talked to many pastors over the last two and a half to three years. And the sentiment is often the same. That what crushed our hearts the most in watching our churches over the 2020 and 21 years was, was watching a people who forgot this ethic and this witness. Watching a people who came at one another instead of loving one another. Watching a people who forgot the gospel. Watching a people who allowed opinion and preference over issues of politics and social unrest and whatever else, medicine, what, you name it, bring division among us when God said, love one another as I have loved you. We've ripped each other apart and God has been grieved. And you may say, it's been, it's been better. <laughs> We're not, it's not as bad as it was a couple years ago. Well, if I may, it's 2023. We're not in a pandemic and it's not an election year. How will we be different? How will we be different when election, presidential election rolls around in 24? Will we revert back to the same nature of ripping each other apart? We love one another with this peculiar, shocking, curious, countercultural, astonishing love that is the ethic and the witness of the church. A new commandment I give to you. Just as I have loved you, Jesus said, love one another. Oh God, give us strength to do that. We can't do it. We can't do it in our own power. We, we can try, but we will fail. Our love will always be imperfect on this side of heaven, but we desperately need you to do a work through us of love. And the only way that we can do that is, is through your power at work within us by basking in the love that you have for us in Jesus. So even now, as we turn our attention to this table, may we do just that. Holy Spirit, be present, moving, working among us. That we may see the beauty of Christ in the sacrifice. We may be shocked again, afresh, anew, by your love for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And first John, this same author who wrote the Gospel of John, this apostle, the best friend of Jesus during his time on earth, he wrote a few more letters that are kept for us in the back of our New Testament, First John, Second John, Third John. And in First John, he continues this theme, and he says this, First John 4, 7 through 11, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, as we mentioned. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Propitiation is a fancy word for atonement, covering, sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what John is doing is he's anchoring this whole teaching of love one another in the cross. He's anchoring it in the only place it can be anchored. That whenever we doubt that God loves us, we look to Jesus. We look to the cross. And he shouts to us over and over again, I love you. I love you. Remember, love is accompanied by action. And there's no greater action of love than the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a bit lengthy and it'll take us a little bit of time, but I think it's worth it. I love this from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. He said this. If love grows sick and cold, there is no place so fit for it to go as the place where it was born, namely the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love was born in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus sweat great drops of blood. It was nurtured in Pilate's Hall where Jesus bared his back to the plowing of the lash and gave his body to be spit upon and scourged. Love was nurtured at the cross amid the groans of an expiring God beneath the droppings of his blood. It was there that love was nurtured. Bear me witness, children of God, where did your love spring from but from the foot of the cross? If you wish your love when it is sick to be recovered, take it to some of those sweet places. Make it sit in the shade of the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And make it stand on the pavement and gaze at Jesus carrying his cross down the Via Della Rosa to, to Golgotha. While the blood is still gushing down, take it to the cross and bid it look and see afresh the bleeding lamb. And surely, surely this shall make thy love spring from a dwarf into a giant. And this shall fan it from a spark into a flame. We want to love, we have to be captivated, captivated by the love of Jesus and the cross, the sacrifice. That he would break his body and spill his blood for you and for me. Why? so that we can know the love of God and be united to him in his death and in his resurrection. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.